The interesting thing about having a success academically was that it spilled over into other areas of my life. It kind of helped me ask a question of, if I can do that, what else am I capable of doing? And that's a really powerful question. And that's really what we try to do at the academy, is you start with kids' academics, and you start showing them they're capable of more than they think. Welcome back to Infinity Inc, where I talk to some of the world's brightest founders and thinkers about their bold visions for the future and the thinking that went into all in an easily digestible half an hour. We'll be focusing on ideas and companies that can have a transformative impact on the world, including everything from new school systems to seasteading. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Chris, thanks uh, so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. And uh, I'm you know, well aware of your work, being a direct beneficiary of it last year. But maybe for people who are less aware of it, do you mind giving a two-minute bio and who you are, what you do, and what you're all about? Sure, yeah. My name's Chris Lauder. Um, I'm one of the founders of what's called the Dublin Academy of Education. It's essentially like a private school uh, based in Stillorgan, South Dublin. Um, we started off doing grinds in a, in a power centre, doing maths grinds. And over the course of about 10 years, we, we grew that to uh, one of the largest grind schools in Ireland. And as of September 2018, we opened up our own full-time school offering you know, full-time courses for fifth and sixth years and repeat leading search students uh, based there in Salorgan, as I said. And uh, I suppose it's all about just great teachers helping students to put their best foot forward academically when it comes to the leading search. Um, and really is helping students realize their full potential academically, but also like from doing that, um, help them realize their potential personally too, you know, and, and really helping kids grow in confidence. That's really what, uh, that's really the good stuff that we do uh, and I've yeah. seen happen over the years. But uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's as much of a nutshell as I can put it in. Yeah, well, uh, no, it's very, very concise, very good. Um, I've certainly felt the, the benefits of it for sure. You mentioned there, uh, good teachers and I thought an interesting place to start might be and um, correct me if I'm wrong but I think I'm remembering this correctly you had a particularly good physics teacher at one stage that possibly changed your belief structure about you know what you were capable of as a student do you mind speaking to maybe how that informed your opinions about you know how impactful good teaching and, and good teachers can be Absolutely, yeah. That's really where my journey into education started, like looking back in hindsight. I, um, I, I was in school going into fifth year. Like I was kind of a middle-of-the-road student academically. I had a pretty strong junior cert in kind of maths and science, and I was never good at languages. Um, but going into fifth year, I, uh, I chose physics as my leading cert subject, leading cert science subject. And my, my teacher in school, uh, God bless him, you know, he tried, but he kind of wrote me off early on and said, ah, Chris, I don't know if you're good at physics. Uh, I think you should, you know, don't get your hopes up in the leading cert. You're about a C student. And uh, he kind of kept saying that to me. And as a result of that, I didn't feel very motivated to, to take action. I get stuck into the subject itself. And as a result of that, I, I, I took kind of poor action towards, the, towards it. And uh, all the way through my fifth year in school, I was getting Cs in my, in my class tests, kind of, which reinforced the belief that, uh, you know, maybe I wasn't good at physics. You know, this, this teacher was telling me so. And, you know, he's a teacher. You know, they, they, they tell the truth all the time, don't they? So, a bit of sarcasm there. Uh, but yeah. I was coming, out, coming out, uh, into sixth year. I was like, something's not right here. Like, you know, I was good at science in the junior cert. Uh, why am I doing so poor in physics? So I decided to go and get grinds in physics. 
and I went into I went into a well-known grind school on Leeson Street. Um, okay. And I took uh, the name. The Institute of Education, um, uh, fantastic place when, when I went, and I I took grinds with a, with a teacher there in physics, and literally, like I remember going into his first class, and it was like like night turning to day. Like the way this guy explained physics just blew my mind. And it just, it like the penny dropped and it made so much sense. All the stuff that I couldn't get my head around all suddenly was demystified and made total sense. And uh, I remember him saying in the class, and he said it quite regularly in the class, the teacher, he goes, guys, physics isn't hard. You know, once you just kind of like follow what I say, put the work in, ask questions when you don't understand something and kind of work through my notes, like there's no reason why you can't get an A1 in physics. In fact, you can only, you only need to study 70% of the course and you can get an A1 in physics. Obviously, an A1's a H1 in today's movie. And I, I remember just being blown away by that because I was always, you know, told by my other teacher, oh, physics is hard and no, you're not that good at it. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not an easy subject to do well in. Whereas this guy had a totally different attitude towards it. He was basically from day one trying to build our confidence before we learned anything. He was kind of saying, guys, it's not that hard. You know, you can yeah. do this. And uh, then he backed it up with great teaching, which is obviously a very important element. And all the way through sixth year, after going to this guy every week in physics, I saw my grades go up and up and up in all my class tests. And it was definitely a reflection of, of this guy. And I remember uh, my teacher in my day school was like, what's going on here? Jesus, Chris, you're doing great work. And it was something to do with him, obviously. Um, and then obviously in the leaving cert then, you know, I went into the exam feeling pretty confident about it and uh, came out, did, did quite well and, got a, and I actually got an A1 in it. So in the space of about 12 months, I went from let's get about 50% in class tests to getting over 90% in the actual even circuit exam itself. And I would solely put that down to the teacher showing me the way that this other teacher I had, who still teaches to this day, uh, and those who do their research can probably figure out who it is. But um, that really had an impact on me, that experience. And it wasn't the A1 that uh, really stayed with me. It was the experience of, you know, a teacher showing me that I actually had it in me all along to get a good grade. Obviously not everyone gets A1 and A1s in physics with good teachers, but I particularly had a belief that I was stuck at a C3, for example. And uh, that was been reinforced by a teacher at the time, someone creating a limiting belief for me. And uh, this new teacher just completely smashed that. And it was all about, it all started with his kind of opening sentence in the class saying, guys, it's not that hard if you just follow this formula, you know, follow what I do in class and uh, you know for me like that was really eye-opening in that it just takes the right mentor the right coach the right teacher who can really help you realize your potential and uh, I think that that is really strongly overlooked in society in that teachers are kind of not um, in my opinion they're not like looked at it seriously enough um, in terms of their importance for developing young people and teachers often, they kind of put people, put kids down, they give them glass ceilings over their head, they create limiting beliefs in their, about what they're capable of, and that really can hold them back in life. And like, I kind of look at, you know, students going, God, imagine, you know, how much potential is in all these kids, you know, in our school. And like, the only thing that's holding them back in many cases is the limiting beliefs they have about themselves. And I think teachers are the key in many cases to unlocking it academically. And uh, now, what the interesting thing about like having, a, like, a, for me, like a small success, let's say, academically there, was that it spilled over into other areas of my life. It kind of helped me ask a question, like, if I can do that, what else am I capable of doing? You know, and that's a really powerful question. And that's really what we try to do at the academy, 
is you start with kids' academics and you start showing them they're capable of more than they think. And when they realize that, they'll start asking that question. Geez, what, what, maybe I could be good at public speaking or maybe I'd be a good leader. Maybe I could be good at, I don't know, playing the violin. Who knows? But um, I think it all starts with great teachers. So I hope that's a, probably a bit of a long-winded answer. But um, No, sort of, I, I think uh, you're bang on there. People need so, such little encouragement to, um, to just start believing in themselves and, and thinking, you know what, actually with a bit of work, I can actually do well here. And it's not just about academics because once you, you know, start believing positive things about yourself, you just start acting in a different way. And it's, it's really like a self-fulfilling loop and um, like an upward spiral yeah. of sorts. Um, and so having that experience um, and having such a great teacher and having that unlock, you know, a whole new way of, of looking at the world was that, something you saw in Brian when you saw him giving maths grinds and was that what kind of made you decide to to pull the trigger on starting the, the Dublin School of Maths or maybe take us into a bit of the origin story. Sure, of, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so uh, when I came out of school, I got into civil engineering in UCD and I, I, the reason I chose the course was I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do and I was good at maths and uh, like Lego and that's what the, the guidance counselor told me what to do. So signed up for that course and that's where I met a guy called Brian McGovern and this is in around 2007, today, yeah, 2006, 2007, it was the height of the boom, things were going great and civil engineering is a great degree to have, you know, building, you know, there's great opportunities in your career and all that good stuff and um, I, uh, I met Brian and he was kind of like me, he was from a family business background uh, and we both kind of fell into engineering almost by mistake and we didn't really like it all that much. And we were always talking about, geez, when we get out of here, we'd love to start our own business yeah. and work for ourselves. And uh, that, that's probably what we spend most of our time talking about as we struggled through four years of civil engineering. Um, an interesting thing happened. First of all, uh, during, the, during our degree, the little thing called the recession came. And I'm not sure if you remember what that was like, but um, yeah, basically the whole world collapsed economically. Yeah. And all building overnight just you know, stopped and having a civil engineering degree wasn't a great, uh, great place to be in 2010 when Brian and I came out of college. Yeah. And it was probably for the best, to be honest, because, you know, ultimately didn't really want to be engineers anyway. And uh, Brian and I, what's interesting as well, both our family businesses went under in the recession. So we kind of had no backup plan. We, we couldn't be engineers. There were no jobs. Didn't want to be engineers anyway. But like the backup plans to go into our family businesses were gone as well. So we kind of had nothing to do. We had a bit of a blank canvas, which uh, in hindsight was probably the greatest thing that ever happened to us. But um, while we were racking our brains trying to come up with an idea to, to start a business, um, Brian, all the way through college, did one-on-one maths grinds. And he was unbelievably popular um, at giving these grinds. You know, his phone would be off the hook. And he'd be doing 15, 20 maths grinds a week on his motorbike and making a fortune out of it. In, in fairness, I, I actually got a few maths grinds from an engineer and he was unbelievable. He just, he was really good at maths, which is obviously a prerequisite to being a good teacher, but uh, he was able to communicate the maths in such yeah. a way that like blew my mind. You know, he made it so simple and so easy to understand and he used like really interesting examples to explain things. And um, so uh, I remember saying to him, why don't we just, uh, you know, rather than you doing the maths grinds one-on-one, would you just rent a room somewhere? and conduct a class and that would save you driving around to everybody's house and he said he thought about it but he never got around to it so I said why don't we start doing that you know and uh, literally Dublin School of Maths was born we want to give it a kind of official sounding name not just you know Brian's maths classes we want to make it sound like it had been around for a while 
So what we did was uh, rented a room literally in a power center in Cabin Tealy and made up flyers on our home computers on Microsoft Word and just like stuck them up around the area. Actually, when I say around the area, we, we drove around for like ages, putting them up in every post office, supermarket, uh, anywhere we could, you know, from Balls Bridge down to Bray. And the interesting thing was like, it was around the time of this thing called Project Maths was coming in. Okay. So what that was is they were changing the whole junior leaving cert maths curriculum to something that was more kind of relatable to students because the problem was less, lesser and lesser kids were taking higher level maths because it was too hard. So they were trying to kind of reinvent maths and make it more relatable to kids, right? And it was meant to be all about thinking outside the box and take rote learning out of maths and make it relatable to, uh, you know, everyday life. And it was meant to eradicate the demand for maths grinds. But the funny thing was, it actually didn't. It probably trebled the demand for maths grinds because none of the teachers really were teaching it right. Uh, and Brian, obviously, been Brian, got his head around it very fast and created notes and created class content and was just running unbelievably good quality maths classes from the Paris Centre. And uh, before long, you know, we went from 20 kids to, you know, 30 kids to 40 kids to 50 kids a week. And it started to really take off. Um, and that was really purely down to the quality of teaching that Brian was given in those classes, you know. Yeah, was, I, was, um, I was speaking to Thomas Arnold on Monday um, for the mm-hmm. podcast as well. And he actually, Brian was telling me, he felt so strongly about the quality of classes that he wrote Brian a handwritten letter and really? when he did well in his leaving cert. Yeah. No uh, way. So he was in, oh, that's gas. He was in that class. So um, I, I, do, I remember you saying on a previous podcast that um, the real like growth engine for Dublin School of Maths was surely how good Brian was and then the word of mouth that generated. Yeah. Oh, I was huge, you know. So what we did was we we we, actually, we were getting to a point where, um, you know, the word of mouth was good, but we were losing out on lots of customers because we had no reputation. So nobody knew who we were, bar like the handful of people that were coming through the doors to actually go to Brian's class. So what was happening was like the phone would ring and I'd answer, and uh, people were like, um, I saw your flyer. Uh, can you explain to me why your maths grinds are better than the institutes? Why would I trust you versus you know? a crowd that ran for 50 years and yeah. about half the time I'd be able to convince them to no, come along and, tr- and you know you know sit in the class and pay for it you, you'll love it but half the time I wasn't able to so Brian and I came up with this idea like let's just give it away for free like let's just let people come and see how good Brian is and yeah. once they see how good he is they'll stay you know and they'll pay for the, the classes so we actually designed kind of a free three-day maths course before we started the, one of the terms like in our second year and uh, I remember we said, look, let's go big with this. Let's, let's advertise it all over the place. And it was kind of the start of our second year. And uh, I remember in the first year, I think we turned over about 20 grand or something, like really modest. And we kind of took all the money we'd made and we spent it all on flyers for the, the second year, advertising a free maths course. And uh, literally the phone exploded. People couldn't understand how we were giving away free, a free three-day maths course. Like what's going on? Mm. And I explained that, oh, it's free, but, you know, it's kind of, at the end of it, you have the opportunity to sign up to a full year worth of grinds with, with, with us. And uh, pe- people thought that was great. And, like, tr- I remember, like, 300 people turned up for the free three days. And out of the 300 people, like, 150 of them just signed up wow. when the three days were over. So that really was an eye for us because um, not only do you have to have great teaching, you absolutely do. 
uh, and that really helps with word of mouth. But you also have to have clever marketing, I think, in any yeah. kind of business. Um, I think a business has two jobs. It has one job is to innovate and uh, do something kind of new and better than anyone else, which I think Brian was absolutely doing. Yeah. Uh, but you also, the second job is marketing. Like, there's no point in innovating if you can't sell the products. Um, and the marketing whereby you offer something for free, like try before you buy, it worked really, really well um, for us because we had no reputation. People worried about paying for something and, you know, it not working out for them. Whereas yeah. if you just give it to them for free and show, show them value, show them how good it is, be transparent about what you're offering, uh, then they can't say no to that. And then once yeah. they get the value, then they sign up. Um, so that really helped transform, you know, our growth from there. So we ran for two years then as, as the Dublin School of Maths, uh, myself and Brian. And then it was getting to the point where people saying, well, you still maths grinds. Would you not do, you know, a, an English class or an Irish class or French? And, you know, we, we, we kind of thought, thought carefully about it and said, OK, well, if we're going to do that, we have to make sure that, you know, the, the French classes and the English classes are as good as the maths classes. We can't just have Brian been class and then someone else coming in and been only mediocre. Yeah. So we were we decided that we would branch out, and uh, Brian's brother Tom McGovern then joined us in our in our third year, and uh, we rebranded to the Dublin School of Grinds because we were adding on extra subjects. But um, we decided that if you know if we're going to hire other new other teachers to teach alongside Brian, they have to be really good. So we decided that we weren't going to try and make any money out of the the school at all, but rather any of the money we were making for the maths classes, we we're going to pay really good wages to people to teach the other classes. Okay. If that makes sense. So, you know, yeah. if you pay well, you're going to get good quality teaching. So that was kind of the, the mantra we went with. Um, but rather than just hiring a teacher based on their CV or an interview, we'd ask the teacher to come in and teach a class for us before we hired them. And yeah. that was one of the most important things we did because the only way to know if a teacher is a good teacher is to watch them teach. Uh, there's no other way. There's no hiding, you know. Yeah. I've seen teachers over the years who've written textbooks who've you know, been examiners, uh, like literally written the leaving cert, but they're actually not great teachers. You know, they're amazing what they do in, in one respect. When it comes to actually communicating, though, in a certain way, that's going to get through to the kids. You know, they've sometimes fallen down there. So, you know, over the last kind of 10 years, literally I've watched, I think it's, it's, it's over 800 teachers in action. And from that pool of 800, you know, selected the teachers we have, we have today. But um, by being really selective with our teaching, and then applying that whole freemium model to it. As soon as we launched the other courses, they took off as well. And we went from like, say, 200 kids in the maths grinds the previous year to over a thousand students in our third year when we launched all the other subjects. So like the thing started to blow up on us. Like it just yeah, exploded. And we were completely chasing our tail. It was just me, Brian and Tom, three of us. And then teachers were coming in the evening times to teach in the parish center. We were renting a hotel at the time as well. And it was just pure chaos. And the space of about, I'd say, 12 months, we went from three staff to about 12 staff in, in the office, just kind of trying to do everything, yeah. uh, run the show. But like we were, it was all over the place, to be honest. On the surface, they looked great. And teach, yeah. students were coming in and getting taught. And that was the main thing. And they were getting their notes and getting value. But underneath it all, it was all held together with sellotape. Like it was all yeah. over the place. Well, that's probably, probably the way to be, you know. Um the Wizard of Oz approach, you know, make it look all, all fancy out front, but behind the curtain, it's all, uh, it's all frantic. And um, yeah, so the data freemium model kind of became a bit of a Dublin School of Grinds hallmark, I suppose. I remember going to a load of the, the free ones and uh, just being blown away and then signing up, of course. Were there any other kind of like clever marketing 
tactics that you guys uh, went for. I, I remember Tom talking about your rep and scheme. Was there anything else like that that, that really worked and really helped it blow up? Um, yeah, the, the rep thing we actually did for many years, which we've actually moved away from now. But basically, you, you get certain students in certain schools and say we help spread the word about the, the, the Dublin School of Grinds or now the Dublin Academy. And, you know, in turn for, you know, for helping spread the word, it might be like through their, you know, their friends group, they kind of, you know, share information about upcoming courses and stuff. Um, and, and in return for that, they get a discount on, on the courses. That worked quite well for, for many years. It's getting to the point now, though, where actually we, we think it's kind of run its course and it's not working anymore. But in terms of marketing, we really have like turned up the dials on our digital marketing strategy. And yeah. back in the day before, like, I mean, we started off like social media was only just in its infancy yeah. really in like 2010, 2011. Like it wasn't as widely used now as it was back then. So a lot of our marketing was kind of offline. So we, we did like brochures indoors and, you know, so, uh, like bus stops ads we've done in the past. We did radio advertising. And, um, but over the last kind of say two, three years, like we literally stopped all of that. And almost all of our budget goes into digital advertising uh, simply because like every single person uh, is on social media now and it's just the most powerful way to reach people. And, and the way our kind of strategy works is um, we're all about giving value. You know, the, again, I'm not a big fan of this guy, Gary V, but yeah, he's all about give value on social media, become an interesting person to follow. I think, no. um, yeah, he's, he wouldn't be my favorite either, but the, the one really thing he's nailed it on is uh, the jab, 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 right hook. And I think yeah. that's something that you guys do a lot. Like the amount of free content that you guys put out, it's, it's like your best stuff pretty much. Yeah. And yet people still come to the grinds. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, you know, with, with our social media, like we try and be like an interesting account to follow uh, rather than just sell, sell, sell. We're doing the jabs, you know, adding add value as much as we can. And then, you know, you get a following and people trust that, you know, you know what you're doing. And then when it comes to the point where they want a bit extra help, they'll come to you. So we've invested heavily in our social media strategy and anything, all things digital marketing. Uh, like even on YouTube, like we, in the last like number of months, we've probably done three, 400 videos put up, put up on YouTube. Obviously that's COVID related, but uh, people are really engaging with a strong on social media. So to answer your question, uh, the thing that's working the most is probably our digital strategy. Jab, 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 right hook. You know, that, that's what I'd say um, has really helps. Uh, like it's, it's really helped our, our school grow. And like what it's all about is what I believe in is if someone's going to sign up to your school like ours, like we're all about being transparent. So we want people to know exactly what it's like before they kind of come through the doors or have a very good idea. So our social media is all about showing people through the, 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 the door of the academy showing them into the classroom, showing them the teachers. Like these are the people who work here. This is the kind of environments that you'd be in if, you, if you're a student with us. And, you know, this is the type of teaching you can expect, you know, whereas I think a lot of institutions almost hide behind the door, you know, yeah. they don't let you in until you pay the fees and then you find out, you know, so mm. I, I think that kind of transparent approach like is really helped us. For example, like Dave Lewis, who you know well, and like he has some students come into him and they're like, cause he's been such a big part of our social media. Like they know who he is and they almost kind of, you know, this is probably pushing it, but look at him as if he's a celebrity because like yeah. they've seen him so much on the Instagram account and you know, he's a pretty interesting dude, you know, and all the things yeah. that he does. And so like, you're almost like we're, we're creating these kind of uh, personal brands for teachers, yeah. which uh, seems to be working quite well for us. So I love that uh, idea. Yeah. The, 
the rise of the of the super teacher and and i think that's important as well like that teaching becomes something that is really like looked up to and and respected in society because they play such an important role in uh students and by extension like people's development yeah and so you know that's only a good thing and but like just on that marketing piece there like you have a youtube channel instagram podcast and and that's just like not something that like any other school does was did you consciously decide that at the start like okay we're going to take a fresh approach to this and or did it just kind of evolve over time and it's it, we, we wanted to, um, ultimately, we want to talk to our, our customer, you know, yeah. and like that, that, that landscape is changing so, so much. And like, like we kind of touched on earlier, the jab, 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 right hook scenario. And um, customers are, are very perceptive these days. They know when you're trying to sell to them. So you can't just plaster them with ads for your school. Uh, they won't engage with that. Like back in the day, like, I think I heard Tony Robbins say this, it took an average four times for someone to see an advertisement before they'd buy. Now that's like somewhere between the region of 16 and 20 times before they'll buy anything. So as in they ignore it most of the time. So the way to get a customer to engage with you is to add value to them. So it's to talk to them. It's talk about things that they're interested in, talk about things that they want to find out. So um, we, we are trying to figure out as many ways as possible to do that, you know, using our time effectively and resources that we have and deploying them in such a way that we get the most value into our customers as we can or our potential customers, if you will. And, and for example, a podcast is a great way of doing that. And, uh, you know, we, we've got such a wealth of knowledge in our staff room when it comes to all the different subjects and students want to know what our English teacher, Gavin Cowser, thinks about English this year. You know, what poets does he feel? you know, are really important to focus on, you know. So, what you know, the podcast was basically designed to be like a chat with these superstar teachers and get, pick their brain on, you know, what students should be focusing on. And, like, it worked really, really well. And people absolutely love the podcast. But, like, yeah. what, but then they're in your net, like, you know, then they're, they're in your kind of, you're on their radar, if, you know, if you know what I mean. And uh, then they might come on our Instagram page and, and see, geez, they, they do videos every week on, different parts of the course and biology and French and English and maths and God, this is a good play page to follow. And then you hit them with an ad down the road, you know? So, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, that's what, and that's what I've learned from looking at marketing, what's happening nowadays. And you know, that that's the way people are going. And I think for a school to do, it's, it's been certainly been a bit of a, we're blazing a bit of a trail in that sense, not doing a great job but all the time, you know, some of the, some of them go great, some of them don't, but that's all about, that's all to do with execution. You know, you just learn as you go and, yeah, uh, certainly you're fine at a lot, but it's working, yeah. we hope. And um, yeah, so we kind of left off there when, when you were renting hotels and, and renting out Oatland School, I think it was as well. Um, but in 2018, I think it was, you made the leap to becoming a full-time school. What was the kind of thinking that, that went into that or was that always on the horizon? That's an interesting question. Um, well, we, what, what, what's funny is in the, the period of 2010 to 2016, 2017, but it's a seven year period. We grew from, like I said, 20 odd kids a week to, it was actually three and a half thousand. We got to yeah. every single week coming for grinds classes. Now everything we did was um, part-time, you know, we didn't have a full-time school. So students would just come to us once a week or for a revision course at Christmas or Easter. Um, and we had to move venue because we grew so much. We had to move venue 
every single year basically because we outgrew where we were so we were like nomads going around the place yeah um, and one of the last places we ended up was uh, was oakland's primary school as uh, so like you mentioned there and uh, things were going great for us for a while there and then eventually the residents kicked up and uh, they uh, well i say residents one resident kicked up in fairness because he was giving out about the traffic and i don't blame him i wouldn't fancy all the cars coming through yeah. uh past my house every single night of the week um so uh, he took us all the way to uh, on board Planola with a, with a case, basically saying that we were using the school too much and we had to leave. <laughs> and uh, he won. And we got evicted from Oakland's about a week before we were starting our, our next term. And uh, luckily, we managed to scramble together and get it sorted. Uh, and we moved to another venue. But it was a bit of a wake-up call for us. Yeah. And that we needed to get our own building. We can't be relying on just renting places by the hour because, you know, one landlord that doesn't like us could just kick us out and we'd effectively be homeless and have to shut down so uh with all that in mind then i spent a good bit of time trying to find a building for us to put the school in and uh, long story short we went through like four different planning applications for various buildings when i say planning applications to set up a school you actually have to have a, a specific use on the building for education yeah. so we had to uh, we had to get that and there's very few buildings with educational use on them so uh three places we went through all failed through planning as in like they got rejected and um, and our fourth place was in Stolorgan there just uh, Stolorgan Plaza and uh, thankfully that that came through for us and in in May 2017 we kind of got the keys to, to our very own school uh, and signed a 20-year lease so we're not going anywhere for a while but um it was uh, around about that time as well that Brian and Tom actually decided to, to, to exit the business and I took on an investor at that point to kind of help facilitate that. And what was interesting was we had this building then and it was empty during the day. There was nothing going on, you know, from nine in the morning until 5 p.m. We had 15,000 square feet that was just sitting there. And it really was at that point, we're like, okay, we're ready now to open up our own full-time school. And we made the decision, uh, obviously, well, it was in my mind for a long time, but we really committed to the decision about 12 months before we were going to kind of open the doors full time. So we had 12 months to kind of recruit students and market it and get people in the door. And that was a pretty interesting experience. Uh, mm. I wasn't sure how to market a school. Um, yeah. I, I didn't know anyone had ever done it before. Uh, there was no uh, instruction manual for this is how you recruit students to, to a school. Yeah. Um, so we literally had to just use our instincts to try and get through to people that this is what we this is what we're about this is what our full-time school will be like uh, and uh, it was a serious challenge to say the least because you know it's very hard to sell someone to something you will be doing if that makes sense like we yeah. now track record in delivering full-time education so it was a bit of an uphill battle but um it's one that we just threw massive action at and uh, we managed to persevere and um, the, the first thing we actually had to do, though, was convince the teachers to, to join. Obviously, you can't have a school without teachers. Yeah. So um, we were lucky enough that we had, obviously, a great cohort of teachers teaching with us in the evening time, about 30 or so. And I approached, I think it was 11 of them, to say, do you want to, um, do you want to quit your school, your safe, secure, state job, and uh, just take a gamble and work with us uh, full time? And of the 11 that I, I approached, all 11 of them, said yes i actually would love to um, and that's probably a function of you know the a new opportunity um, you know maybe a bit of being a bit jaded by the state system who knows uh, and obviously economics were in their favor as well because you know 
not not to beat around the bush you can earn more money teaching privately in a place like ours yeah and so that really really helps so we got all the teachers signed up which was amazing but we had about 12 months to get students in and we needed about 150 students in the full-time school to really justify you know the amount of costs that would be associated with it so uh I just kind of started with the end in mind, if, if that makes sense. I, I said, well, if we want to get 150 students, you know, we have to, you know, get a certain amount of students who are interested and bring them on a journey. And you're going to have a drop off for people who decide not to sign up. And, uh, you know, we're going to probably need to get in, you know, maybe a thousand people interested and then whittle it down to hopefully 150 at the end of the day. So I kind of devised a, a six step process for someone signing up to a school. I kind of asked, well, what would a student need to know about our school if they're to sign up? And more important than what would a parent need to know? So we kind of designed this whole six-step process where we answer questions all the way along and yeah. bring them on a journey. And by the end of step six, they should know enough to say, yeah, I'm happy to sign up. So the step all started, the first step started with someone coming on our website. And on the website, we just explain, you know, with text and maybe the odd video, what the school was about. And then you'd ask them to register on the website for an open evening. That'll be step two. And an open evening would be, um, you know, basically a night at the school where you'd have a number of speakers. You'd have myself, the principal, a couple of teachers, and a couple of students like, like yourself who would have been through the grinds and would have, you know, yeah. a first-hand experience of what these teachers were like. So, so step two was to sign up for an open night. Step three was to actually turn up at an open night, it's actually turn up so you'd be surprised, you know, when you launch an event, you know, not everyone turns up, so step three. And at the open night, it was really where we'd start, you know, uh, communicating with them about like exactly what was gonna happen. Now I say exactly what was gonna happen, I didn't know, you know, we were kind of making it up as we went along a bit, but what I did know for certain was that we had an amazing team of teachers and that was an absolute constant. Um, yeah. And the rest for me was secondary. Once you have amazing teachers, um, you know, I, I think everything else then is manageable, if that makes sense. Uh, so, you know, we had people come up to the open night and then after the open night, they had to register for a one-on-one -on -one meeting with us. You know, say if the open night didn't answer all their questions, we'd bring them in to sit down with us one-on-one, -on -one, myself and the principal uh, would meet them. And it was basically like them grilling us on, you know, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? Like, you know, it's easy to run a grind skill, but running a day skill is a different beast. Like, how do you expect to be able to do that? Uh, so I, I heard it all and not, not to get too into it, but I, I think we did about 250 one-on-one -on -one meetings over the course of about six months. And it was pretty grueling. Like it was some yeah. days, there was doing 10 of them. Uh, but it was an unbelievable chance for market research to really learn, yeah. you know, what is it that people want um, from a school like this? And, uh, you know, I, I thought it would all be about academics. You know, they just want to, you know, do well in the leaving cert. But I, it, that was certainly part of it. But they also wanted just a place to be happy, like, you know, yeah. students just wanted to you know be able to make friends like that was one of the biggest uh, concerns kids had was if i go to a new school will i have any mates mm. uh, so it was all about trying to you know reassure them that that certainly will be the case and um, but l luckily you know the the, the the strategy worked and we actually signed up 213 kids to the year one of the day school which was uh, which was quite an interesting result for us you know we we're hoping for 150 but we were fortunate that we had we had 213 and by no means were we starting from scratch and um, you know we had eight years of doing grinds under our belts yeah. we have eight years of teachers coming through and you know students coming through been taught by great teachers and getting great results uh, in the leaving surf for themselves and that certainly helped launch that was the platform that we could launch the full-time school from 
but uh, it was uh, yeah, it was quite an experience. You know, we just yeah. finished our second year there, the COVID crisis, which I'm sure you'll ask me about next. And yeah, and um, we're going into year three now, the day school, year eleven of the school overall. So that's where we're at. Yeah, that's uh, it's quite a a task to convince someone to you know leave leave their secondary school, all they've ever known, and and come and try this new new thing and kind of stake their leaving cert on it but uh um you know even I who love the grinds I'm, I'm pretty fond I was pretty fond of my school so it would have been tough to leave but like to get 200 people to do that is is something else and but you touched on it there you were saying that you know it's about a lot more than academics a school because that's probably the most common critique leveled at, at grind schools or and um, like yourselves in the institute that you know it's they focus exclusively on on academics, which probably isn't fair. But like, how have you tried to create a school atmosphere in the Dublin Academy? Um, well, there's a number of things we've done. And um, first and foremost is um, we wanted us. Well, I wanted it to be different from um, say what else was out there, uh, which is the uh, the institute. Obviously, that's a that, that's a massive organization. You know, very successful. And um, but it's it's more of a you know there's a hundred kids in the class there's 1500 students yeah. in the school well my day there was and um, and it, it, it's very hard to get to know people you know that when yeah. you get to big numbers like that it's community is, is is kind of not there so we wanted to create a much smaller environment where you know everybody knew each other and um, where you have classes of 25 kids you know not 100 or even overall, like you'd know everybody in your year because there was only like 120 students in the whole year. So it would be easy, like your own school, I'm sure had about that in it. Um, so it was all about size. We wanted to make sure we, we weren't too big, which certainly, uh, was, which was the right call, I think. Uh, but obviously as well, we wanted to have the, <clears throat> the right students. We want to have students that kind of wanted to be there. And um, we didn't want students who have been forced to go by their parents because that would definitely affect the whole atmosphere in the school. So one of the very important questions we asked in an interview was, why do you want to be here? And, um, you know, we'd ask, was it your decision or your parents' decision to come here? And it was funny, like the students, in fairness, like a lot of them, were, it was their decision, but the students who didn't want to be there, you could see it like a mile off. And they're the kids that we didn't really want to, to, to work with because, you know, we don't want to drag a student along. And we want students to really want to be there because that makes a very... A kind of important atmosphere I think in a place if everyone's there because they want to be there and it was their decision they're much more bought into it uh, because they feel like god I can't let anyone down now because I was the one who wanted to come here and um, so we want the kids who want to work hard not necessarily all the 600 pointers like yourself but the students who want to apply themselves and grow academically that might be going from 350 to 400 points that might, might be going from 400 to 500 who knows and um, so we wanted the right kids but then where what we also did as well was we, we wanted to have kind of like a liberal-ish atmosphere where there was not, like there wasn't that many rules, you know, it wasn't very militant that, for example, there's no uniform, which is obviously, yeah. you know, that that's one step and since the students aren't, you know, that they feel like it's a little bit more, not casual, but, you know, they can express themselves maybe a little bit more. And the, one of the really important things we, we did was we wanted the students not to be like afraid of the teachers. They wanted them to be their kind of like their coaches to, they're on their side. So one of the things we, we kind of wanted to do was that the students called the teachers by their first name, you know, so it's Rob, it's, it's Ronan, it's Gavin, you know, it's Katie, it's, it's Tracy. It's not Mr. Smith, you know, it's, it's so like by calling the teacher by their first name, it, it actually is an amazing tool for building rapport with someone. 
And that rapport is so important if you're going to teach the kids, if you can get through to them. And um, so um, what, what, what that did, did as well, though, is like it got students used to talking to adults like on a different level. You know, in school, sometimes you're afraid of the teachers or the principal. Whereas in our school, it's more like, no, we're here to help you. And we're like your coach. We're, we're on your team. And like that obviously helps them academically in a big way. But it also helps build students' confidence in getting used to talking to adults. Um, which is something that uh, can help them kind of mature a lot faster, I think. And they kind of go into college feeling a bit more confident in themselves. Like we, we've had students who could, I remember who came in the door for the interview and they were looking at the ground and they couldn't look me in the eye and, you know, they're very nervous. And then by the time they're leaving the, the academy's full-time school, like they're like different kids, like completely transformed. They believe in themselves. They're used to talking to adults. They're, you know, they're just much more mature and confident in who they are. Um, so uh, I hope that answers the question. But yeah, we, we were talking about it earlier and briefly um, and the transition. To, so everything's going well. First first year in the books with, with pretty good results. And, you know, first half of the second year going smoothly, I assume. And then, like many people, like everyone, you're kind of blindsided by by COVID-19. What did the reaction to that look like and and what kind of challenges did you have to deal with um so i mean when they closed the schools on the 12th of march and they initially said they'd just be closed for two weeks and what was interesting was like my my attitude was that okay just because the schools are closed you know i don't think that's an excuse for us not to still teach students i think we have an obligation to all of our to all the students here in the academy not only in the full-time school but in the grind school so um I, I you know luckily as i said you know we were looking at online education since about 2018 yeah. and we've been recording content you know to camera and kind of been storing it all away because we want to kind of bring this blended learning kind of into the academy so uh, luckily we were working on that over the last kind of 18 months to two years and when they closed the schools on the thursday the 12th of march on the Friday morning, we had nine videographers come into the school and set up in each one of the classrooms. And all the teachers turned up to school that Friday and just started recording to the camera. And the reason we were able to do that was because we were already doing it kind of before all, the, all that happened. So it was like a seamless transition for us. Yeah. And we had to make a lot of phone calls to get those nine videographers in. But, you know, the funny thing about COVID was there was no videographer work. So uh, they were delighted to come in with us yeah. and we set up uh, and literally like our school went from being a, you know, a place of bustling with students to being just a giant recording studio. And uh, all the teachers just simply taught to the camera what they would have taught to the class. So uh, what was interesting was like we were pumping out content like you wouldn't believe and it was all on memory cards and it was a disaster. So we had to hire like four uh, editors content editors to basically take all the information from the memory cards and like edit it all up and put it on YouTube. And like, it was an unbelievable process. We had 13 people hired in the space of 24 hours to uh, basically take what the teachers were teaching to camera and putting it online. So our students could literally log on and just watch it as normal. So, so students literally got, say, for example, if you're a student in our day school, you'd get four hours of maths a week. And we just recorded four hours of maths. Uh, and then sent it to them on YouTube. So they just, as, as if, they just continued on with the curriculum like as if nothing happened. And then we also set up once a week with each teacher, the students would log on and have a Zoom call with them just like this. So they'd watch the digital content, they'd watch the video, 
uh, and if there's nothing they didn't understand, the teacher would hold a tutorial in that week to talk to them about it and answer questions. And it worked unbelievably well for us. Um, not a single minute of tuition was missed. You know, we were able to just continue on. Uh, and then what was interesting was, kind of I was looking around, as I said, it was only maybe two weeks the schools were closed for. But I had a little look around, obviously, what other countries were doing. And the likes of Japan just shut down schools for the rest of the year. Uh, Northern Ireland were to shut down schools for the rest of the year. I was like, this is going to happen here. I just know we're not going to go back. So we, we started recording everything. We, we literally recorded all of our Easter vision courses. We pivoted those online. We were meant to hold those in person, like we do every year. We just made the decision early on to record them, put them online. And the interesting thing was, like, they actually ended up closing schools for the rest of the year, and we were all ready for it. So, like, literally the click of a switch, our Easter courses just changed from a live class to an online class. And, uh, like, it was a seamless kind of transition, which was great. Um, and we learned an unbelievable amount about the, 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 the opportunity that comes with online education and that, like, We'd only traditionally be able to sign students up from or help students from Dublin, Wicklow, maybe Kildare. Whereas now, like, you know, for our, you know, Grinds courses, so we're getting people from like Skibbereen signing up, whereas they never would have signed up in the past, and Kerry and yeah. Sligo and all sorts. Um, and, but, but back then, sorry, to the day school, we also kept our assessment schedule going. So in the academy and the full time school, we have a quite a robust system of assessment, which thank God we did have. Um, for the predicted grade situation but um we were able to just keep that going we did it all online which 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 was fantastic so all the students still got all their tests and uh, they were all marked over the over the internet which would via this um special platform that we have uh, where, where students literally submit all of their questions from their smartphone they take pictures of them upload to a platform our examiners log in mark on the platform and within, for example, one hour of a student submitting a maths exam, they had their exam, their, their, their marks back to them. So like, wow. it was, so not only our kids were being taught, they were being uh, checked up on via the Zoom calls, and we were also assessing them all virtually. Um, so, you know, it was great. And it was a challenge, obviously, but I, I think we, we put our best forward and best foot forward, certainly. And uh, I, I think the kids, they, they got as much as they possibly could have. In fact, I think they got more content that they could actually watch. Uh, we, we, yeah. In the space of uh, three months, you made over 600 hours of video content. 20 terabytes of, of stuff uh, was streamed out to them. So, Yeah, well, it's, it certainly seems like you know, doing all that work that other schools don't typically do before the crisis just made you so anti-fragile when it came along. You could actually gain from disorder rather than be you know, broken by it, as, as probably many schools were. And, 100%, yeah, uh, that's a big point. Yeah, like we were ready for it. Like we'd started to make, like exercise those muscles and, you know, and we kind of knew what to do as soon as it happened, you know. And what, what's interesting as well is like I felt we had no choice but to do this because yeah. we're a private school, a fully private school that has no funding from the Department of Education and, and people are paying, you know, a premium to come to us. Like my attitude is we can't let these people down because we're an easy target if we do. You know, if, if we don't, deliver the service to our students it will affect our reputation in a significant way we can't afford that to happen we have to look after our customers and i think that's one of the benefits of sending your your your, your students to a private school like ours is that like because we're like you know we, we live and die by our reputation and we have no choice but to deliver the goods every single time if we don't deliver the goods we go out of business uh, and I, th I think that's where sometimes the school system can fall down because there's no accountability in some places. And look, 
I, I, I'm not tarring everyone with the same brush, but I think there are some institutions that kind of went to sleep during COVID-19 and they didn't, you know, step up to the plate. And, you know, I know lots did, don't get me wrong, but I just, just from anecdotally speaking to people and hearing that, you know, that some schools didn't react, didn't step up to the plate, didn't, you know, try hard enough to, to, to help their kids get through this. Um, and you know, I think that's, like I said, like we've no choice but to do that because we live and die by our reputation. So yeah, thankfully we were able to. Yeah, certainly private institutions have so much more skin in the game, you know, keeping their students happy and, you know, they can rely on, on government funding. Do you think that there would be more innovation in education if there were more private schools like yourself in non-publicly funded schools and and do you think that'd be better for the school system um yes uh i think um that's a very good question uh the answer is yes i, I think you know if you I, okay let me start again i think one of the issues with the public system and the issues with the, the world overall is that if you give someone a job that they cannot be fired from that they're completely protected by, from losing their job, that breeds contentment and it breeds, you know, lack of engagement in, in some people. And mm. what happens is, you know, bad teachers are just kind of left to their own devices in a lot of ways. And, you know, principals can't get rid of them because they're protected, because they're, because they're, they're civil servants. And the, the, unfortunately, there's people, students lose out there, you know, because a bad teacher can have a massive impact on um, the, 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 you know, the progress of a student. You know, it can have a massive impact on their life. You know, someone who's told yeah. they're bad at maths can take that with them into adulthood because yeah. they had a bad maths teacher growing up. Whereas in, the, in a fully private environment like ours, um, you cannot be bad. Now, if you're not good, you're gone. You know, yeah. and we, we, we've been through teachers in the past that just weren't, didn't cut the mustard and we got rid of them and they put our students first. And on the other side of that then, if you're an amazing teacher, you know, you get the the rewards that you deserve because everyone wants to come to your class. So 100%. Yeah. And if you're an amazing teacher in the public system, uh, you know, it's very hard to like get those rewards because you're on a scale and you know, you're limited by what's around you. Mm. Uh, you're constrained in that respect. Whereas a place, a fully private institution you know, the sky's the limit, you know, the better you teach, the, the more impact you can make and the better you can do kind of economically. But it, you know, there's a fine balance. Like if everything was private, it wouldn't be right either because there has to be equal opportunities in education and uh, that's a very sensitive subject. You know, I, I, th I think a balance between privatization and uh, public is important, absolutely. And I think everyone deserves access to great teachers, but unfortunately, it's just not possible to have amazing teachers everywhere. Yeah. Um, but for those who are willing to uh, and have the means to invest in their education, I, th I think private institutions have no choice but to deliver the goods because mm. otherwise students don't come back the next year, if that makes sense. So Yeah, and as well, I think if we want to increase the amount of, of standout teachers in society, which would be, you know, an altogether really positive thing, then having more private institutions and having that ability for them to excel and, and make, you know, make a really good living for themselves if they do a good job, it's probably one of the one of the best things we could do to um, incentivize that. Hundred percent. You know, private privatization. Trouble saying that word. It uh, it breeds competition, and competition breeds better standards. Mm. You know, if you've got people competing, they have to raise the standard in yeah. order to compete. And uh, when you raise the standard in something, obviously the outcomes are better. So yeah. uh, I think privatization. Jesus, 
Um, I, I think we'll see it more and more in education globally. Yeah. I think in Ireland we'll see it more and more uh, because I think ultimately we've got a, a system of exams that aren't going away. You know, you, you've got a leaving cert exam, you have to sit to get into college and, uh, you know, you've got to be prepared for that. And students more and more are seeking out grind schools or seeking out, you know, institutions like our full-time school where they're not going to go in and get maybe one or two dodgy teachers and be let down. If they come to us, they get seven, eight top of the range teachers, like best of the best. And they can, you know, have comfort in having a consistently good set of teachers teaching them through the leading cert. And I think more and more students want that, if that makes sense. Um, and they're willing to invest in it. Uh, because it's uh, so, yeah yeah no I think you're right so yeah we've we've spoken about some of the the benefits of the academy and all its strengths which which are many but um there are certain criticisms that people might make of grind schools in general or private education maybe one of them would be that it like perpetuates kind of a, an inequality of sorts like how would you address that and how do you like you know what are the main criticisms of the academy and, and how would you respond to them um i think you know we'd love to be able to help everyone i think every student deserves to be taught by the best teachers absolutely wholly and totally um and you know to, to kind of to address that and what we do is not everyone can afford grinds i mean that's just the sad yeah. reality uh, first of all even saying that grind skills shouldn't exist to be honest and it's probably interesting me saying that you know i think every t- every student should be taught by great teachers unfortunately that's just not the case yeah. um, but for those who are willing to invest and, and can you know I, I think the benefits are, are certainly there and um, for them but to, to address uh, you know the fact that there are students out there who can benefit hugely from uh, private tuition like ours but can't afford it we, we actually partnered with say vincent Paul a few years ago and we run what's called the Opening Doors program. I actually started off like just with Brian and myself years ago, going into UCD and Brian teaching, you know, a few classes for free for underprivileged students from disadvantaged areas, and seeing uh, some of those kids actually. And this is a true story. Brian went in and taught uh, maths classes for three kids, and uh, they were like bright students, and um, but they had no higher level maths teacher in their school because they were the only three students in the entire sixth year doing higher level maths. And Brian kind of took them under his wing and literally, you know, they, they went through all his classes, they came for free. And I'm not joking, the day the leading cert results came out, the three lads were on the front cover of the Irish Times holding up their leading cert results. And all three of them got into college, uh, one like doing like engineering and science and all sorts. And they did, they took the higher level paper, they did well in it. And, um, you know, that really, and then it was obviously because they went to Brian and Brian was able to teach them because they had no other teacher. But it showed that like there are so many kids out there with the ability to do well, but it's just yeah. they're missing that good teacher. So what we did was we went to St. Vincent Paul and we said, we need more of these students. You know, so they actively went out and found uh, students for us. And they still do every single year. We take in between 50 and 100 students for free into the, the Dublin Academy for Grinds classes. Um, and it's all sourced by St. Vincent Paul. They do all of the, you know, the vetting, making sure that the students are, you know, worthy of it and so on and so forth so we do that to try and i suppose somewhat level the playing field for those who yeah. can't afford it um but certainly there are criticisms you know of course there's criticism you know grind skills are all about making money and you know maybe that's that's what people think and certainly it is it's part of it like you know there, there's economics involved you know we costs and you know provide ed- excellent education comes at a price so 
you know, for someone to kind of criticize that, I'd say they probably don't understand the economics of the cost of running an operation like ours. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think in our society, you know, I think that's just the, the way it is. You're going to have privatization of certain services. Look at healthcare, for example. You know, there's a massive divide between, you know, those who have private healthcare and those who have public healthcare. You know, and that will always be the case. You'll always have your BlackRock clinics, the Beacon Hospitals. Um, but, you know, there's just, that's just the way it is. And um, I think education is going to uh, probably even go, go more that way. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think it's, as long as we, we keep a social conscience and, and try and look after those people, those people who, who really deserve it but don't have access to it, uh, that, that, that's what we'll do to try and, you know, level the playing field for some. So. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's admirable what you're doing because there's, there's a phrase, um, talent is, is evenly distributed but, or globally distributed, but um, opportunity is not. You know, there's, there's so many, say, like lost Einsteins or even lost Chris Lauders or Brian McGovern's out there that could, uh, could be um, flourishing but just don't have the, the means to do it. And um, so I think that's a great initiative. Also, I would say like even the content you're putting out for free is, is really leveling the playing field for everyone who's taking the leaving cert. And like, you know, having those tools on the internet is, is a real leveler. I, I think that used to be kind of secret knowledge held behind the, the doors in maybe the most elite, elite grind schools. And um, so that's another force for good, I'd say. Absolutely. Um, yeah, one last thing on the academy. So say you, you're speaking to a group of students that just graduated this year, and maybe you did this after graduation, but what one quote or piece of advice would you give to them going forward? <laughs> Jeez, that's a good one. I'd say, yeah, actually, I, there's a few things. You know, this is probably just one that's coming to the top of my head, but I think a lot of young people don't have a clue what they want to do in life. Um, yeah. I think that's one of the biggest challenges these days is that there are so many kind of routes to go down that people don't know where to go, what to do, or, you know, there's this fear that I'm, I'm not passionate about anything. You know, people say, I'd love to start a business, but like, you know, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what, you know, what I'm passionate about. And uh, that breeds a lot of inaction. You know, they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to kind of semi do nothing. And I'm just going to hop in the river of life and let it take me wherever it goes. Rather than and, being, and that's it. they think they're not making a decision that way when actually, you know, they're having their decision made for them. That is a decision in itself, you know. Yeah, exactly. Not making a decision is probably the worst decision. Yeah. But then, um, you know, the, people think that if they find their passion, they'll be able to persevere through anything. You know, if you're passionate about it, you'll be able to stay up all night working and deal with all the negativity and you know, power on through no matter what. But I actually think it's the other way around that. If you persevere at, at things, you'll actually eventually become passionate about them once you start seeing wins. So what I mean by that is, you know, if someone doesn't know what they want to do, I'd say just start doing loads of different things, you know, start meeting loads of new people, start like take all sorts of different jobs, you know, and try and spread yourself, you know, in the early years when you're young, when you're kind of just out of college, like try loads of different stuff, you know. And don't, don't, don't settle for things that you're, you're not happy with. And uh, as soon as you, you get into something that's kind of semi-interesting, you know, get curious, get more curious about it, keep persevering at it. And uh, cause you'll eventually become passionate about it because like, you know, if you'd asked me back in 2010, are you passionate about education? I would have told you, I don't know the first thing about education. Like at the time, no, nothing about it. I, I, I didn't think I'd be into it at all, but the more time I spent in it and, as we started to get, you know, wins along the way, we started to grow and uh, 
get a real sense of progress. Geez, the passion started to turn up big time then, you know, and uh, the thing is about life, I think the way to be happy, you know, I've experienced this anyway firsthand, the, the best way to get happy in life is, is just to progress and to grow. You know, it's not about, uh, you know, money or anything like that. If you, if you just stop growing, you start dying inside. Um, and, you know, when I got, got into education by accident, I, you know, not only was I doing education, I was actually doing a few other bits on the side, but with the education, it started to really work. And we started to get some wins and there was that progress there and uh, started to get passionate about it. So to answer your question, what advice would it give? It would be to, to try loads of things, you know, explore, get curious, you know, try and expose yourself to as many different things as you possibly can. Uh, and don't settle for things that, you know, you know don't, don't settle if, you, if, if other people, I tell you, oh, you need to just get a nine-to-five job and work in KPMG. You know, don't settle for that if, if you feel there's more to life. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, great advice. And I think what, there's, a, there's been almost like a, a Cambrian explosion of, of all these things saying, you know, oh, find your passion, find your purpose, and like it'll come to you. But I found that to be somewhat, you know, unhelpful. It's more that it's created. It's not, you know, just discovered one day. It doesn't just come to you. And I think as you get good at something, passion follows, not the other way around. So that's, that's definitely, that's probably been true for you. 100%. True for most 100%. people. Yeah, like a good idea doesn't interrupt you. Mm. Or yeah, you don't just discover what you're passionate about one day. It, it takes time. It takes perseverance. Yeah, to, to develop it. And, and maybe taking on a more uh, personal tack, I might go into a few uh, quick fire questions and kind of, liberally borrowed from from tim ferris in the end of his podcasts but are there any books that you've gifted most often uh, i'd say rich dad poor dad okay that changed my life that's a good one actually i better reread that um and what one habit or system has most improved your life i'd say exercise would probably be number one uh, which is actually killing me because the, the gyms are closed. Yeah. So it's been a massive adjustment for me, uh, not having that. But definitely exercise, getting up early. Sorry, the best, yeah, the best is probably getting up early and sleeping well the night before. Good sleep, getting up early, um, and exercising first thing. That has definitely been a game changer for me in terms of mental cognition and energy levels and mood and all of that. Good sleep, good exercise, and then starting the day, having those two under your belt. I think that's one of those keystone habits. Once you're once you're up early and you've exercised, you're not just going to go and and I don't know waste time on on YouTube or Netflix or something. Absolutely. A good day is sure to follow. After you start a, a chain reaction of good things, and you want to keep the chain going. You know, mm-hmm. it's all about just starting. You know, with something good, and then you'll want to do something else good, and then you don't want to break that chain of good stuff. So yeah, absolutely, getting up early is a good way to do that. Yeah, and um, there's a sense that I get from the academy that it's, it's more than just school. You touched on it earlier that you said you want to help people fulfill their academic potential, but also their, you know, their fullest potential as well. And is, is there something, I know on your LinkedIn bio you say you want to make it you know, the, the best school in the country in terms of um, results and college placements. Is there anything beyond that that you aspire to do uh, with students? It's about academic realization, certainly in terms of their potential. But what, what, what's more important than that is when you show someone they can do something that they didn't know they could do, 
academically is a good way to do that because you can measure it. And that often spills over into other areas of their life, like it did for me with, with the physics story I told at the very start, that you know, I did something that I didn't think I could do, which yeah. is a very important experience, uh, what it was for me, because it made me question other limiting beliefs I had about myself. For example, things like public speaking was something I absolutely dreaded, like most people, I think. I don't think anyone's born with a love of public speaking, and, yeah. and I certainly didn't like it. But, uh, you know, once I got through the, the physics and I got through college, I, I kind of started to challenge that belief when I started to take courses and I started to do bits and bobs of it here and there. And I certainly, I'm, not, I'm by no means a Tony Robbins, but I, I got a lot better at it. And, you know, and there was other things in my life as well that my academic that academic success spilled over into personal areas of my life where I got better, be it fitter, uh, kind of uh, better habits in my life. And, you know, did stuff like, for example, with, with the school that I never thought I could do um, yeah. prior to that experience. So to answer your question, it's if you help someone achieve their academic potential, you'd be amazed at what it can do personally for them and, and their life, you know, confidence wise, you know, and their kind of personal self-worth. Yeah. So unfortunately, kids these days, you know, they, they associate their self-worth a lot with how good they do in school, you know, which can be a risk because a lot of people who go on to be very successful in life, they didn't do well in school. But yeah. a lot of people don't do well in life if they didn't do bad in school as well. And, you know, it's all about showing students that they're worth a lot more than they think. And when they realize that, they can achieve a lot more. If that makes sense. Yeah, empowering. Because just from being there and being in that, you know, that building where you have um, FlyFit and you have the Dublin Academy, it feels like something like Plato's Academy for, um, you know, full human development. And uh, probably academics are the best gateway to overall human optimization or human human improvement and yeah. um, because yeah it does serve as that kind of red pill moment almost of oh wait there's so much more that i can yeah. that i'm capable of i think it's a great service you're doing for for people and um, and finally what was gonna ask? Okay. so this is one i've been asking a few people lately and i just think it's interesting the difference between say knowledge workers and athletes and uh, musicians and mm-hmm. um, how deliberate practice you know f- enables athletes and musicians to get better but there's no kind of equivalent thing for most most knowledge workers so I'll, I'll put it to you Chris what is the closest thing you do to practicing to a pianist practicing scales each day how do you how do you get better um, at what you do over time um. That's a really interesting question. So there's a book called uh, Outliers written by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. You've probably read it, like, knowing you. Um, and there's a thing in it called the 10,000 hour rule. So yeah. become an expert at anything. Uh, there is this theory that you have to spend 10,000 hours doing it before you become an expert. Like, um, I actually read another book that's really interesting and not, not to, to, to kind of go off on a tangent, but it's called um, The Goldmine Effect by Rasmus Ankerson. And it's all about looking at um, gold mines of athletes. So, for example, he goes into Brazil. He said, why are most of the best footballers in the world Brazilian? Right? And the interesting thing is, right, in Brazil, when you're a kid, you're basically thrown out into the street to play outside because, you know, there's just, like, typically in the favelas, there's not much space to hang around. So all the kids play football. This is the thing they do. They all play football in the street. And by the time the average Brazilian is 13 years old, they play 10,000 hours of football. To compare that to the average man from the UK, the average footballer from there, 
they're, they're, the, they're around 30 years of age before they play 10,000 hours of football. So you've got a 13-year-old kid who's done 10,000 hours of football. How good a football is he going to be versus someone who doesn't have it? Obviously, you can't even compare the two. So, um, you know, to, to, with that principle in mind, like what, what one thing I want to try and get better at is, you know, just my psychology. You know, in life, I think, uh, something Tony Robbins says, who's, again, a big hero of mine, he says success in life is 80% psychology and 20% mechanics. So what he means is it's 80% of success is what you think, you know, what's going on in your head. Uh, and 20% what you actually do mechanically. So the actions you take and so on and so forth. So my goal is to try and have the best psychology I possibly can. And the best way to have a good psychology is to work on it, is to feed your mind information. You know, the interesting thing about your brain is if you start spilling information into it, you know, more and more every single day, good information starts coming back out. If that makes sense. You know, you'll yeah. start saying, you'll talk differently, you'll think differently, you'll act differently. And um, so every day what I try and do is whether it's read um, or listen to stuff, probably like most people, I think you're one of those as well. I like to listen to a lot of stuff. So I'll try and consciously put at least 30 minutes a day into learning, you know, be it uh, from literally on YouTube, just whip out a bit of Tony Robbins, you know, there's yeah. an unbelievable amount of content there. Uh, now you might need the Tony Robbins, but there's Tim Ferriss. There's hundreds of these kind of uh, self-help gurus out there that um, can help you learn and grow. And, you know, reading has certainly been a big part of, you know, my adult life. Uh, as a kid, I was a terrible reader, really crap. I'd never read because I just didn't really get stuck into it as, as a young lad. But uh, definitely reading books has totally changed my life because the amount of information out there that um, you, you can, like, pick up and then apply in your own life is unbelievable. Yeah. But, uh, the thing about success is it leaves clues. So if you want to do anything in life, no matter what you want to do, there's probably someone else who's done it before out there. Yeah. And, you know, if you can just, you know, get the, 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 the model that they used or if you can apply what they learned or apply what they did to your own life, you can copy it. It's something like baking a cake. You know, if you just follow the recipe, you'll have the same outcome. Mm. And uh, so what I try and do is work on my psychology as much as I can every single day and model people who've done what I want to do in life and try and follow what they've done because success leaves clues. So that'd be one of the big things I, I, I kind of done. Now, I haven't done it all the time. To be honest with you, during lockdown, I thought I'd be reading books three, four hours a day, listening to podcasts. I didn't know it. I actually stopped everything. And <laughs> so uh, by no means have I uh, been perfect in that regard, but it's something I try and get back to as much as I possibly can is, is constantly learning. Um, for example, like Bill Gates, you might know, we reads like 50 books a year. You know, Bill Gates can read 50 books a year. I don't think anyone has an excuse not to read yeah, or learn yeah. more. So, yeah. Yeah. No, lockdown issues aside, I think we all might have fallen off the wagon somewhat. But uh, yeah, I think reading is just so powerful. It's like having a conversation with the brightest minds from, from all of the generations. Um, and you'll find that there's always someone who has like some kind of insider answer to whatever you're struggling with at the time. Even if no one's ever opened up you know trans transitioned from a grind school to a full-time school and in ireland you'll find something you know analogous to it like someone building any type of empire or any type of community you can you can draw comparisons and uh and certainly learn from it that way chris uh thanks so much for coming on i've definitely learned a lot and i think one of the main takeaways will be you know it, it's easy to get you know try and be too glamorous with uh, coming up with 
with great business ideas and, and dreaming up these ideas. But in reality, you know, what you guys did was just productize something that Brian had been doing all along and was really good at, did it really well, and you know, put the work in to, to make it something really special and delivers a lot of value for people. So um, just as a, as a customer, I want to say thank you. And uh, then as, as podcast host, I want to say thank you for, for a great podcast. Uh, pleasure, Will. Thank you very much for having me on. I loved our chat.